Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and today's episode is with author Melinda Wenner Moyer, who wrote this really great new book, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. It's her first book, but Melinda is a contributing editor at Scientific American Magazine and a regular contributor to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other national magazines and newspapers. She's a faculty member in the Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting Program at NYU's Journalism Institute. And she wrote this really great book, Pulling Together the Research from the Developmental Sciences and Mapping Them Out to Think About How to promote these teachable character strengths and traits that help support kids' growth and development in the ways that we're all hoping to support our kids. And in this episode, we're talking about the science-based strategies for raising kind, generous, helpful, motivated, resilient kids we're talking a little bit about sibling research, about TV and screen time. We're talking about lying and truth-telling and just having difficult conversations in general. If you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to subscribe, rate, and if you have time, write a little review. You can DM me on at Raising Good Humans podcast for questions that I can share on Instagram or on my bonus episodes the first Monday of every month. I would love to walk through the traits that you talked about that help children thrive, that are teachable, and just give a nugget that you thought was kind of unexpected. So we can start with kindness and generosity, and I can Mm -hmm. go from there. I'm sure you already have this down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I started the book with kindness and and generosity and helpfulness because I felt like those were kind of the like really key traits that to me was sort of the opposite of assholery. Like that's how I kind of conceived of these. Like what are the traits that are sort of the opposite of what you would have if you were an asshole? So yeah, I think um, with generosity and helpfulness, the thing that was surprising was how how the research really clearly showed that talking about feelings and allowing your kids to have feelings, like acknowledging them, validating them, that is a really important foundation for the development of generosity and helpfulness, you know, because it's kind of counterintuitive. Like why would talking about feelings make a child more helpful and more generous? But 
then when I dug into the research, I mean, it, it does make sense because, you know, kids, in order to be generous, in order to be helpful, you kind of have to be able to recognize another person's feelings, another person's state of mind and put yourself in their shoes and, you know, figure out what they need, what would make them feel better, what, you know, what would make them happier. And in order to do that, you really have to be pretty fluid in the language of emotions and in sort of understanding and recognizing them. And so, yeah, the research pretty clearly shows that like talking about feelings is a really important aspect of helping your kids develop these, these traits. It's important to say, because often I think one of the fears is that if we talk so much about feelings that our children are going to become self-absorbed and just in sort of think about their feelings all the time and how they're doing, but it really does shape empathy And you just alluded to that whole idea of perspective taking, which you talked about the research on theory of mind, which Mm -hmm. is such a great focus to have just to, to imagine how hard you have to work to help any human being. I mean, we're adults, we're, (laughs) we're still working on this, understand that someone else's mind may have a different point of view, may see things in a different way, may have preferences that are different and all of those things. And so talking about feelings really is a good example of, and naming them and other things. I think you, you talked also about even how we're doing shared book reading can have an impact. Yeah. Yeah. There was a really fascinating study on that shared book reading that I thought like really clearly illustrated this link. And I, I just think it's, I love talking about this study because it's just so interesting. Um, so researchers invited moms and their preschoolers into a lab. And that's another aside I have is like, there's so much research that only has moms and it. it's so frustrating, but um, no. anyway, <laughs> that's like a whole another topic. Um, and watched as the moms read a book to their preschoolers and also kept track of how many times the moms would sort of pause reading and talk about the feelings of the characters, you know, and say, what do you think this character's feeling and yada, yada. And the assumption was that when they did this a lot in the lab, those were probably moms that also talked about feelings a lot at home. And then they took these kids one by one later on into a room with a researcher. And then the researcher feigned needing help. Like she would drop a pencil and say, oh, I wish I, I can't reach my pencil. I dropped it. Oh my goodness. Or she would say something like, um, I'm so cold. I wish I had that blanket over there across the room. And they watched what those kids, what the kids did in response to the researchers needing help and found that the, the kids whose moms talked a lot about feelings in the first part of the experiment were the kids who were most likely to help the researchers in the second part of the experiment. So I thought that was just such a like clear example of, of the significance of this link. And I agree that like perspective taking is, is complicated. I think we as adults kind of take it for granted. It's not that hard to sort of put yourself in another person's shoes, but it's, it's a skill that takes a while to develop in kids. And, and the more that we can, you know, help it along, the sooner our kids will be able to, to really be, you know, start being helpful, start being generous, start being thoughtful. And probably it's great to mention, it's so hard to develop that skill that it takes patience from parents. So a two-year-old doesn't have it. So to have that expectation of a two-year-old is developmentally inappropriate, whereas a four-year-old can, but nobody can, if we know adults that don't. So that Mm -hmm. always muscle building, you know, kindness actually is associated with happiness for the person doing the act of kindness, not just the person receiving it. 
Yes. Yeah. It was really interesting because yes, I, I had this in the back of my mind and people would say this to me while I was working on the book, like, but you know, isn't kindness going to hold people, you know, hold kids back? Like, aren't they going to get walked all over? Aren't they going to get taken advantage of if they're too nice? And I, I feel like, first of all, like we're kind of conflating things here. Like you can be kind and generous, but also stand up for yourself and you right, know, right. have good, good self-esteem. And like these two things, you know, they can coexist, right? You, but and you can, you know, and, and being kind to others and generous to others, like you can also be kind to yourself and generous to yourself and, and know your limits and know your boundaries. Like those, you can do all these things. Um, but yes, when I actually looked at the research on this too, it was very clear that, kids who are kind and people who are kind actually tend to be the most successful as well. So this idea that like in order to get ahead in the world, you have to, you know, be cutthroat and you have to be like obnoxious. And, you know, this, I, this sort of like a notion we have of like asshole CEOs, like that, that isn't how it actually works out. If you look at the research, um, there is one study that I thought was just so fascinating where researchers, it was a longitudinal study and they observed kindergarten boys, I think, um, I'm not sure why just boys, and um, kept track of like how kind they were in the kindergarten classroom and how generous they were. And then they followed them for, I think, 20 or 25 years. And they found that the boys who were kindest in kindergarten were the most successful, like they had the highest income when they were 25. They were the least likely to be in prison. There were all these good outcomes that, that, that were associated with this being kind when they were young. And so, yeah, that's, that's really illustrative. And Adam Grant, um, he wrote an entire book on this premise, give and take, which is like the most successful people are actually, you know, generally the most thoughtful, the most generous and happiness as well. You mentioned happiness, like people who are kind are also happier. So yeah, there's all of these good things that are linked with kindness that, that go beyond, you know, being good to others. It's like really good for you too. You also talked about motivation. Now, of course I don't have it in front of me, so I'm, I'm going to use my memory, but motivation and resilience and what was, what was the other cluster there? Motivation. Um, grit maybe. Yes. Motivation. After all of that, that cluster <laughs> of traits what are a couple of nuggets there that were unexpected that parents can take away? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was really interesting to look at some of the research, first of all, on like how we tend to think about the importance of effort versus like natural brilliance. There's been research that's been done that suggests that like we tend to think that, you know, being born brilliant is much more impressive than becoming brilliant through hard work. There's just this like bias that we have. And, and as parents, I think I I see this a lot where like, there was one time I had um, dinner with a couple who had like a three-year-old and they kept saying like, he learned to read without, you know, without even trying. And like, therefore, you know, isn't that amazing? Like he, he didn't even have to put any effort in as if like effort is a sign of ineptitude or something. And like, you know, and effort is bad. And so with this chapter, I really wanted, first of all, to, to push against that because what the research suggests is that there were a a lot of people who became really famous, like, you know, Isaac Newton and um, Haydn, the composer, Copernicus, like all of these people, they, they didn't necessarily have super, super high IQs. I mean, a lot of them did, but like they, they weren't necessarily born brilliant. They, they became who they were through like perseverance and effort and passion. And so as parents, I think that that's something to really 
keep in mind um, in terms of like what we promote in our kids and what we praise them for. So that's another big part of this chapter is like, it's really helpful to praise kids for effort instead of for like their natural brilliance or their ability. I mean, we all kind of want to say to our kids, like, you're so smart or you're so good at ballet. And because, you know, and I was praised by my parents that way, right? Like, I feel like it's just ingrained in our culture too. But the research there is really clear that, you know, when we praise kids for ability and for smarts, and then let's say they, they fail, like they, we praise them for being good at math and then they get a C on a math test. Then suddenly they doubt the ability they were told they had. And they think, you know, oh gosh, maybe I'm, I'm actually terrible at math. And they think of it as this like fixed thing that, you know, you're either are, or you aren't good at something and nothing can change it. And so then they're like, well, why should I put in any effort? Cause I'm just not good at it. And I will never be good at it. So praising for effort, which is something that builds what's called a growth mindset. I'm sure you've probably talked about it before here. Yeah, um, but it's great. It's so, there's there's no end to how much we can talk about this. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's, because it's hard too. I feel like it goes against a lot of, you know, what what we feel like we should do um, mm-hmm. and what's natural for us. But yes, yeah, so when we praise for effort, then kids kids think of challenges and failure as just like a brief stumbling block on the road to success. And they, they think of challenges as something that grows their brain and like makes them smarter. And this is like a, just a much healthier mindset to have. It's better for kids' self-esteem too, because yeah, it means that like messing up or finding something difficult or not being as good as someone else at something, it doesn't mean that like you know, you're never going to be good at it. It just means you're not good yet. I love the word yet. That's a, like another thing I talk about. The in the book, word. But, right. It's so good. Um, and, and so if like, if your kid That's is so funny, I, I just, I guess I just had an episode that talks about just adding yet to every sentence, which <gasps> is called Carol Dweck's research, but it is such a brilliant word and helps so much. So maybe can you give examples of how that might help with motivation and, and what we're talking about? since I interrupted you. No, it's okay. Yeah. Um, so, well, as an example, my son took the cello when he was younger, he doesn't play it anymore, but he was always so frustrated that he wasn't you know, good at it. He would say, I'm, I'm terrible because it was, it's hard to learn a new instrument as we all know. And so I would always try to reframe it as, oh, you, you just, you haven't mastered it yet. Or, you know, this is challenging, but you're, you know, you, you, you haven't like, you haven't figured out how to play this particular measure yet. And so anytime a child kind of is wallowing in their, in their perceived failure at something, yeah. you say, no, you just don't know how to do it yet. Like you're getting there. It just takes time. It takes practice. And so those are just great ways of sort of reframing the, that negative mindset that kids can sometimes have when they're struggling. And there's, okay. I love talking about studies as, as you can probably tell, but there's one just, study. Your book is so great because it's so helpful to hear what the science is behind a lot of the stuff. And also when there's such short sound bites on Instagram and in the world now, it's, it's nice to be able to remind everyone that these aren't ideas that one person came up with in a quote on Instagram, but actually like it, they, they typically or hopefully come from lots of really well thought out studies. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to hear where they, where that, I don't know. I like that respect of the field. Although we should say a caveat, which is studies, of course, are you, you mentioned like most studies include moms as the primary caregiver. They include their largely middle-class yeah. family. Sometimes they're high SES or low SES, but for the most part, we're talking about some 
some of the studies like aren't necessarily generalizable to the world at large, but they're the yeah. best we have and they're getting better and better. Right. Yes. No, I completely agree. There are a lot of limitations. A lot of it is sort of focused on like Western culture as well. And so we can't yeah. necessarily, there's so many, yeah, there's so many limitations. Um, but it's what we, it's what we have. It's like, I feel like science is, is not perfect, but it's sort of like the close, the best way to whittle down, like, and get it close to the truth. And the science is still growing, but we have so much information now and it actually can shape how we parent in those ways that are actually, are the things that are in our control. That's what I love about this. And I think the book articulates that beautifully. It's like parenting, the only thing that we can control is our own parenting behaviors. In fact, we cannot control our children or our partners or anybody else. And so why not have the information about the stuff we can do something about? Some days you're going to have the energy for tools and some days the tools are going to be the only reason why you can get through the day because you don't have the energy to even think about this. And other days you just throw it all up and you know, it's dynamic. And I did not feel like the tone of your book. I'm, I try to be careful about that because of course it's a liability in my whole field and everything that I do is like with the hope that I'm not making parents more stressed out or feel more crappy than everything already makes parents feel. So there's so much wiggle room in parenting. It's just this, this is nice. And it really does have concrete tools. So now we'll just continue with those. And, and (laughs) I was going to just yeah. describe one of Carol Dweck's studies that I thought like, again, was just like this incredible illustration of the power of growth mindset. Let's see. Okay. So Dweck and her colleagues had kids come into the lab and they took basically an IQ test and the researchers told, and these were like one-on-one researchers were talking to the kids who took the tests and, but they split the kids into three groups. Like one third of them were told you did really well on this. It must be because you're really smart. And then another third were told you did really well on this. It must be because you worked really hard. Um, and then there was like a third that was just not, they said you did really well on this and they didn't give them a reason why. And then in the next part of the study, they asked the kids what kinds of problems they would want to do next. And they said, would you rather do easy problems that you probably do really well on or harder problems that you probably learn from, but might not make you look smart. And they found the kids who they'd said, you know, you, you did well, you must've been really smart they were less likely to want to try the challenging problems. They chose the easy problems. Whereas the kids who were told you did well, you must've worked really hard on these. Those kids were more likely to choose the challenging problems. And then beyond that too, there were like two other really interesting aspects. The kids who had been praised for working hard, also when they did try more challenging problems, they were much more likely to persist on them and to keep working on them. And when the kids who'd been praised for being smart, when those kids were nevertheless given challenging problems, they just gave up more easily. And the final tidbit that was like, (laughs) I couldn't believe, was they found that the kids who had been praised for being smart, when those kids were given challenging problems and they didn't get them right, they were very likely to lie to their friends later about how many problems they got right. They were like twice as likely to lie and say, oh, I got you know all of them right. And it just goes to show you that when you, when you are praising kids in this fixed mindset for like ability and smarts, what really they zero in on is protecting their reputation because they think, you know, the smartness thing, I can't change it. So in order to have it, like I have to, I have to defend my reputation as much as possible. And if that means like lying to other people about how well I did, I will do that because that's like, that's the thing I have to hold on to. 
Whereas if you are praising for effort, then these kids are just, you know, they, they don't worry about reputation because they know that failure is not a sign that, that they're not good at something. It's just a sign they are not good yet. You know, again, that yet. Um, so yeah. I don't know that study, yeah. just like when I read it, it just blew me away. <laughs> now we're going to take a little break so that I can tell you about my sponsors. You guys know how I feel about Gemist hair products. You can take a quiz and get fast results and then have customized shampoo and conditioner and hair care products that come right to you. You can subscribe monthly and they will accommodate how often you wash your hair so you don't get inundated with too much shampoo or conditioner. I have had a great experience with Gemist and now they have a new product that's a scalp bar. Maybe I've been using too much dry shampoo and hairspray, whatever I find that my scalp needs some soothing too. And I've tried so many products and nothing seems quite right for my hair and scalp, but I've been using Gemist. I took their two minute quiz that matched me with my best shampoo and conditioner and now a scalp balancing bar. And I have to say, I did not know what a scalp balancing bar was and I had no intention of using a scalp balancing bar, but it removed buildup. And now I use it once a week to nourish and soothe my scalp and gently remove buildup which sounds gross. Is it magic? It is not, but it's science and it's awesome. And you can save money by subscribing. It even contains sugar, which is a natural physical exfoliation, ginger oil, which contains anti-inflammatory rich in minerals and helps to stimulate the scalp, eucalyptus oil, which helps relieve itchiness and control excess oil, and tea tree oil, which is antifungal, moisturizes the scalp and helps to clear hair follicles. And have I mentioned that Gemist is also women-owned, has a subscription service where you can save 20% off every order with Smart Subscribe and free returns with quality ingredients that are free of sulfates, parabens, dye, never tested on animals and manufactured in the US. So if you are ready to have the best hair ever, try Gemist. And right now my listeners can give Gemist a try and get 20% off their shampoo and conditioner and scalp balancing bar smart subscription. Smart subscribers already save 20% on each order. So this is an amazing deal. And with free two-day shipping, you can have it in two days. Just visit Gemist.com to help your personalized recommendation and enter Raising Good Humans 20 at checkout for 20% off your subscription and free two-day shipping. That's gemmis.com, G-E-M-M-I-S-T.com and enter code RaisingGoodHumans20 at checkout to get the best hair of your life. Let me tell you about an awesome new service called FrameBridge. FrameBridge makes it easier and more affordable than ever to frame your favorite things without ever leaving the house. Add a gallery wall to your home office or send the perfect gift. From art prints and diplomas to photos sitting on your phone, you can FrameBridge just about anything. And here's how it works. You just go to framebridge.com and upload your photos, or they'll send you packaging to safely mail in physical pieces. If you do it that way, you can send in your favorite works of art that your children can choose from the vast number of art pieces that they've created to do a wall of gallery art. Or you can upload all your favorite pictures that you never know what you're going to do with. Preview your items online in dozens of frame styles and gallery wall layouts. You can choose your favorite 
or get free recommendations from their designers. The experts at FrameBridge will custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece directly to your door ready to hang. Instead of the hundreds you'd pay at a framing store, their prices start at $39 and all shipping is free. Plus, my listeners will get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they used my code, you guessed it, humans. I gave both of my children a particular number of photos that they could choose so that they could each pick a wall for their room to cover in memories, especially this year that's had so much change and so much time away from loved ones. It is a favorite in our household. So get started today, frame your photos or send someone the perfect gift. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code humans to save an additional 15% off your first order. Just go to framebridge.com promo code humans, framebridge.com promo code humans. This episode is brought to you in part by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food, Public Goods is your new everything store thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Rather than buying from a bunch of single product brands, Public Goods members can buy all their premium essentials in one place with one beautiful streamlined aesthetic. It is so cool, this brand. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly, innovative products. I mean, I, I can't even pick a favorite one. Everything from sunscreen to chocolate covered almonds. They ethically source and obsessively develop each of their products to be free of unhealthy ingredients and harmful additives still common on drug and grocery store shelves. They're committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans, animals, and the environment. Knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important, especially for those of us caring for children. Small changes in the way we shop can make a big impact on personal health and the world at large. They use a membership model to keep costs low and pass on even more savings to their customers. And best of all, you can make your first purchase with no obligation. And they plant one tree for every order placed and incorporate sustainability into every part of the company. How beautiful is that? Join hundreds of thousands of others who have switched to their new everything store. I worked out an awesome deal just for my listeners. They will receive $15 off of your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They're so confident that you will absolutely love their products and come back again and again that you are given a $15 coupon to spend for your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash humans or use the code humans at checkout. That's P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash humans to receive $15 off your first order. Hi, I'm Dr. Will Cole. As a leading functional medicine practitioner, I have had the unique position to see so many alchemize their pain and health problems to their purpose. Now I want the same for you. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers, where there is a fresh infusion of grace and lightness into wellness. This is the art of being well. Join me every Thursday for a new episode. So let's go into lying and and how to reduce lying because you just mentioned one of the factors that might go into lying um, really is tied to the way we think about 
mistakes and failure. And there are some other things that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. So lying, one reassuring thing that I heard talking to researchers who study lying is like every kid lies and it is not a sign that your kid is a psychopath or something like kids lie because lying exists in our culture. And there are lots of different kinds of lies too, which is interesting. And I can sort of draw out as well, but like, don't freak out essentially if your kid lies sometimes, because this is part of growing up. It is, and it's actually a sign that their brain is working well because it, it takes a lot to tell a lie and to be able to uphold a lie under questioning. Again, this gets into theory of mind. Like you have to, if a kid wants to lie to his mom, he has to kind of know what his mom knows and know what she doesn't know and be able to sort of manipulate the information he's providing in order to like fit with what she does and doesn't know. Like it's very hard to lie. And so if your kid is lying, like <laughs> it means they're probably, you know, their brain's developing really well. So <laughs> that's just an aside. I mean, one big thing, like kids, oh, this is a really a theme for the whole book, which is like kids do as we do. They, whatever we model, they learn from. And so if we are lying, our kids learn from that and they see it, they recognize it. And they're like, oh, I, my mom just lied. And we might not think that we lie very much, but you know, think about like the little things we do, like when a telemarketer calls at dinner and, you know, we, we say like, we make up a reason why we can't talk to them. That's not really true. Or, you know, or a friend invites us to dinner and we're like, we're tired. And we say to them that we have, you know, some, something's happened, something's come up, the kid is sick or something. And like all these little things that we sometimes do that we don't realize and consider lies, but you know, kids, kids pick up on those. And when, and when we do them more and more, then kids will, will do them more and more too. And they've shown this in studies where like kids who watch an adult lie in one situation. And then if those kids are put into a situation in which they are kind of encouraged to lie, like if they're told not to peek at a toy and then they do peek at a toy and then they're questioned as to whether they peek at a toy, like kids who've just seen an adult lie will be more likely to lie. So we know that. And, and I think we also have to think about um, like, the the little lie, like, so there's different kinds of lies. There's lies for a lot of kids lie to basically cover their butts when they, you know, let's say they break a vase and they don't want to tell you. And so they lie, like, I didn't break that. You know, that's a very common lie that, that arises really early in like preschool years. And then there's the more white lies. And these are much more culturally acceptable. And we actually often encourage white lies in our kids. And so I think we kind of need to be aware of when we do that, like when we, um, say like, I know you didn't like the, the sweater grandma gave you, but when she comes over, I want you to tell her how much you loved it. You know? So that's like, that is encouraging a lie. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not saying that like, we shouldn't be doing that because these kinds of lies are culturally acceptable. And, and yeah, we, we don't want our kids to say to grandma, like I hated that sweater, you know? <laughs> um, but I think we should be aware of it and also maybe explain sometimes to kids, like why you are asking them to lie and to put it into context and say, you know, I, I, I think it's really important to be honest, but I also really don't want to hurt grandma's feelings. And so this is why, you know, if we can find a way to talk about the sweater in a way that won't hurt her feelings, but, you know, isn't, doesn't feel like a, a big lie, but at the same time is something that, um, that what will just like make her feel happy, then, then you can do that. So I guess if, I don't know, the overarching point is like lying is a part of our culture and our, and our kids are, are going to be doing it. And we sometimes encourage them to, but 
it can help to, to also like have these conversations, get into the nitty gritty of like, here's why we might not be perfectly honest with grandma here, but at the same time saying like, but there's so many situations in which like honesty is really important. And it's a really important value that like I, you know, that we have, and that's part of our family. And I want us to be honest with each other as to the degree that we can. So it's, it's a really complicated area, you know, because it's not like black and white, like never lie because we, we do often do often ask kids to lie. Keep the peace. Yeah. Yeah. So moving right along only because we could, each one of these topics is like an, an episode in and of itself <laughs> or 10 episodes. I'm not sure. So in the interest of time, siblings, what were some surprise sibling strategies? Yeah, that was a really interesting chapter because there is some really, really interesting research um, that I just didn't know about. So the big question I addressed was like, what should we do as parents when our kids fight? Because (laughs) siblings fight and especially like, oh my gosh, being home over the pandemic, lots of sibling fighting. um, And that's perfectly normal. Like, you know, kids... (laughs) kids have trouble with impulse control no matter what. And if they're constantly around their siblings and there's just, of course, like there's going to be conflict. So what I found really interesting was, you know, the age old advice to sort of like let your kids work out conflict by themselves, um, which used to be the recommendation with the idea that, oh, if we let kids figure out conflict on their own, then that teaches them conflict resolution skills. And it's great, you know, just let them be. It turns out that's not actually the most constructive approach because as you might guess, the more dominant child will typically win an argument um, if they're left to their own devices and sometimes with coercion and sometimes with physical force. So this is not reinforcing like cooperative problem solving when you just let kids work problems out by themselves. Often it's it's reinforcing that like the best way to solve problems is through coercion and, and physical force. But it's also not necessarily the most constructive thing to be like a referee. So this is something I feel like I still do because it's, it's hard, it's hard not to, but you know, your kids so are hard. fighting and you, yeah, oh, it's so hard. And, and we're so busy and like our kids start yelling and we just kind of jump in and we, we resolve the argument quickly ourselves. We're like, you know, Johnny give Isabel the teddy bear. You've been hogging it. End of story. Like stop fighting. Um, <laughs> Uh, but that also is not like necessarily the most constructive because a, like we're not always right about what's really going on. We make a guess as to who's right and who's wrong. We also are kind of making these decisions about which child is right or wrong. And that can make them kind of feel resentful towards us and think like, oh, mom doesn't love me because she sided with my sister this time and all these kinds of things. And it's not teaching them to resolve conflicts because we're doing it for them. Right. So the way that the research now pretty clearly shows like the technique that is the most constructive and it is a little time consuming at first, but it's, it's to be a mediator instead of like an arbitrator. So what you might do when your kids are fighting is first of all, like acknowledge feelings like, oh my gosh, there's a lot of loud voices. You guys sound angry. Let's take a minute here. Let's take some deep breaths. Like if they're fighting over something, you might take the thing they're fighting over and put it away for a minute let everybody calm down for a few minutes. And then you, you let each child like tell his or her side of what happened and, and how they're feeling. And this is again, really great for the development of theory of mind, because if you ask, you know, one sibling to say, here's, 
here's what happened from my perspective and here's how I feel about it. You know, the other child is hearing this and the other child has this now this opportunity to see the situation from their sibling's perspective, which they may not have done when they probably didn't. They're thinking of, you know, how they, how they saw the things happening, but they might realize like, oh, wow, they, my sibling had a totally different take on this. And that's really interesting. Um, and you're giving them with arbitration. Often we are shaming kids for their angry feelings, like stop fighting, you know, stop being angry with mediation. We're actually like validating feelings. We're saying, tell me how you feel. Let's talk about it. Like each of you gets a chance to say how you feel. And those feelings are validated. And then once each side has had a chance to kind of tell their story, then you, you try to work together to help them come up with a a solution that is like a cooperative solution. Like what could we do here that would make everybody happy? And sometimes you have to, you have to help and provide some suggestions. They might have crazy suggestions, but ultimately you're trying to find some like middle ground, some compromise that everyone will be happy with. And so that's, that's the idea. And it sounds really time consuming. And I, you know, I, I do it when I can, I can't always, um, but I have found that like when I've been doing it a few times with my kids, they then are much more likely to try to do this on their own. Like when I'm not around and they, they will like my, my kids will fight over something. And then I'll hear them say like, well, what if we did this? Like, what if we tried this? What if you had it for three more minutes? And then I had it for, you know, the next three minutes. And like, they actually, they start to do this on their own. And it's amazing when that happens. It doesn't always happen, but like, it, it, it's just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're actually figuring this out cooperatively instead of like, you know, hitting each other over the head with things. (laughs) Um, and, and there's been clinical trials on this approach too. And, and researchers have found that like, kids get along better. They are much kind of kinder to each other when they, when they learn this strategy and they resolve problems much more cooperatively. Okay. So now another thing that happens with siblings and without is screen time, everything. So what are some (laughs) nuggets, screen time dilemmas, screen time fights, you know, arguments over who has what device. And also just in general, I would say now deep into this pandemic, I, the most common thing I've heard from everybody is like screen time's gotten out of control and what do I do? So what are some of your nuggets about screen time? Yeah, I was really interested in trying to understand like just how dangerous screens are. Cause I feel like that is the big question is like, are screens ruining our kids? And so I, I dug into the research and I will say this was one of more my more like reassuring <laughs> chapters yeah, and yeah, findings yeah. because that's, well, that's a great way to end. Let's do the, some of the reassuring stuff. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Because what I found was, you know, th- there's so many scary headlines. There's so many like alarmist headlines about like how terrible screens are and how they're going to ruin your kids and you know all these things. And when you dig into the research, it is it's just not clear cut at all. Like, and it's and there's evidence that of course like kids can do so many different things on screens too. So like often we lump screen time and technology use into this one thing and we look at how it affects kids. And, you know, we need to be thinking about like what kids are doing on screens and and that kind of thing too. And there's not a lot of research that parses that out. But really like the claim that, you know, if kids are using screens for a few hours a day, like they're going to develop ADHD or they're going to be be depressed or they're, you know, it's going to ruin them. That does not stand up when you actually dig into the science. It does not stand up at all. And I think we need a lot more research, but I think this idea that like, you know, screens are categorically bad that we don't, we can't say that based on the research. And another thing that was really interesting, I think when we think about how our kids use screens and what we should be doing as parents to help our kids with screens, I think we often think of like, we need to 
enforce rules and we need to limit screen use and we need to have like all these rules. And what was so interesting was the research that I read and also like I read a bunch of books by researchers who study screen time. They all came down to this idea that actually like the best thing we can do is is to be mentors with our kids with screens. Like to use screens with them, to learn with them, to engage with them around screens. So that might mean like, you know, when your kid says, I want to get this new app, can I get this new app? Like you sit down together and you research it and you like read about it and maybe you, you use it together. Or when your kid wants to, you know, try out something like a new game, like you, you learn about it together, you talk about it together. And in doing so, of course, like you are sharing your values, you're talking about things that are important, like privacy and and safety and stuff. So it all comes down. I feel like so much of my book is like, have conversations about things that like, you may not think you should have, you need to have conversations about, but like engaging with our kids with screens and talking about how they use them and what's important to us and how, you know, what we care about those things, our kids are, are listening and they, they will absorb those and they will like absorb the things you're saying. And so, yeah, the, the kids of parents who really like engage with them about screens and work with them and, and, and play video games with them. Sometimes those kids get into the least trouble online. Like they are the kids who are like least likely to engage in cyberbullying, And they're the kids who are least likely to access porn. Whereas the kids of parents who really like try to limit the use of technology, say you can't use this, you can't use that. Those kids often get into more trouble because of course, like we can't limit their use of screens for everywhere. They're going to friends' houses. They're, you know, they're at school when kids sometimes bring screens to school. And what we've done is we've just haven't given them any information on how to use screens because we have just, you know, we've just prevented them from, from that education. Like by saying, you know, we are not even going to talk about it. You're not going to do it. And so then they, they don't know how to do it in a way that's safe and that's constructive and, you know, and, yeah, it, that was one, the one big takeaway was be a mentor rather than like a monitor of screens. Um, and I've been trying to do that more. And and actually it's been kind of fun. Like I was like, I don't like playing video games. I don't want to play video games, but we got a um, Nintendo Switch for Christmas or Santa did. Um, and Santa got us a Nintendo Switch. And I, I we've had a lot of fun. Like we've been playing and you know, we've been doing just dance together and we have it as like a, a Saturday morning activity. And it's like a little, you know, exercise as well. And it's been a bonding experience. Like yeah. I thought it was going to, I thought it was going to pull us apart, but it brought us together. So I love that. And, and, you know, for some kids that really is like, if you can't find an, a point of entry for connection and they're really into something on the screens or video games or whatever, instead of yeah, poo-pooing it, creating a way of, you know, show me why this is so fun and maybe you'll even get into it. I did, I did try just dance and it was really fun and I was horrible. Oh yeah, me too. <laughs> it was me terrible. Too. And I definitely was like, I'm not doing that. That's, you know, like I was definitely mid pandemic, like, fine, I'll get anything. And it was really, that was a really fun, silly experience. So those are good opportunities instead of pushing them away to engage in something that is actually fun for a totally different generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was making a fool of myself too, but it was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else about video games? I did dig into like the claim that, you know, video games make kids more violent and, and things like that. And I also just was not super convinced by the alarmist claims on there. Um, I mean, obviously I think like 
we don't want our kids like doing really, really violent stuff all the time on screens. It's not probably great, but this idea that like, we're going to poison kids' minds by letting them, you know, play video games. I did not, I did not find the science convincing. And I've talked to researchers about it who are like the effect that it has on kids. There was one study I found that was like, the negative effect that screens had on kids' well-being was like about as strong as the negative effect of eating potatoes. <laughs> like, I'm not kidding. They they compared these correlations of like things kids do and how it affects their well-being. And for some reason, eating potatoes was on there. And like, yeah, the screens were about as like negative for well-being <laughs> as eating potatoes. Really so. Funny. So if you had to just give a final wisdom about what you got from writing this very cool book. What do you feel like? I mean, one of them you already said, which is have conversations. Yeah, that's a big one. And and I mean, honestly, that was like the theme that just kept coming back in every area was have conversations about this. Like, even if you don't have the answers, just engaging with your kids about it, even in your uncertainty can be helpful because how you frame things is is sharing like your values. It's sharing your worldview. It's sharing like your concerns. Um, and, and this is, this is true with the things we don't want to talk about with our kids, like race, which we won't go into that, but like race and, and sexism and sex and pornography, all these things that like we as parents really have trouble talking about. And the research shows we do not talk about enough. We should just try to get over it and it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay if you're not making a whole lot of sense and you're rambling, like you can always come back to it later, but just, you know, bring it into conversations, use opportunities when they come up to like, you know, talk about these things and, and it makes such a big difference. I, and I think, yeah, that this, this is one of the big takeaways. It's like, talk about the awkward things, <laughs> talk about everything. <laughs> right. And you do spend time talking about sexism and racism and pornography. And it's so true that the stuff that we are inclined to not talk about, or just, just to blush while we talk about and move along, anything that's taboo topic for your particular family is the one to challenge yourself to talk about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like, think about what are the things that I know I don't like to talk about with my kids and then, <laughs> and then make it a concerted effort to actually make yourself talk about them. <laughs> and, and I like what you just said, you don't have to have the right answers and we can be super clunky and awkward, but the message is like, even when it's super clunky and awkward, these are things that we can name and talk about. Yes. And we can teach things to our kids through our uncertainty. Like we can say, gosh, I don't have a good answer to that right now. I'm going to do some research and I'm going to get back to you. And in just in saying that we're, we're modeling to our kids, like what to do when they don't have answers. It's okay to not have answers, but you, you know, there's ways to, to find answers and there's ways to do research to get the answers you need. So like, even in those conversations where we feel like we're floundering and we're not doing anything positive, like we are actually sending constructive messages to our kids. 